Hello and welcome to YHTV's Trinity of Life. This is episode 26. I'm Christina Suzuma, your host for this program. Thank you so much for joining me again as I continue to explore the wonderful world of healing arts, meditation, therapies, and the many modalities of helping us find balance in our individual journeys. You know, we're always excited to meet those who are on the leading edge of creating change on this planet. Today is a very special date for me because I get to bring on our co-host and medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman, as he teaches us a few new fun things on how to prepare ourselves from our kids going back to school. <laughs> Literally. Hello, Glenn. How are you? It's good to be here. Uh, uh, it's a whole other world, although they're connected uh, from Magical Medical Tour, many combinations, but they serve both of their purposes. And I'm very excited to be here with you. I watch your shows and uh, love the people that you always have on. Uh, and uh, I'm honored to be part of that today. Oh, yay. Now you get to be part of the people that you love. Yes, I also don't have uh, any responsibility. Yeah, that's what you think. (laughs) So, Glenn, this is uh, uh, a—I think we all know that uh, we have uh, now. It's uh, after Labor Day. All the parents have—you know—most of the kids are back in school. Of course, not the high schools and some universities and things like that. And we hear all the time from parents. Oh, my kid's going back to school. It's time for all of us to start, like, we're going to get sick. We're going to catch stuff all during the year, et cetera, et cetera. And this seems to be an ongoing cycle that we keep hearing over and over again. And I thought that this time was, since we have you as part of our wonderful Yoga Hub family, this is such a great time for us to bring you on board and go, okay, Glenn, what do we do? You know, what do we do as parents? What do we do as families? to prevent or help ourselves from catching all these wonderful viruses and things that are going around. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, when, when a child catches it, the parents get it, the rest of the family get it. What do we do? How do we prepare ourselves? That's a great question. Uh, and I think before I actually start talking about it, I, I need to be transparent about a few things and clear. Uh, I am not a parent. (laughs) (laughs) Lucky you to a certain (laughs) point from the viruses and everything. Well, I don't know that it was luck. I consider it skill (laughs) (laughs) because I made those choices and these are important things. So uh, all of the things that I'm going to be speaking about today are based on not being a parent, not having children. They're really based on my 40-plus years of experience in medicine and dealing with parents and with children, with 30 or more years in emergency medicine, dealing with the aspects of uh, the unprepared uh, parent and the unprepared child, and then uh, about 10 years as a medical guide trying to help people also in this aspect. So... That being said, I think in my process of working with anybody, uh, children, adults, everyone, it all has to do with what you said before, and that's called balance. 
it's all about balance and i use the word sometimes harmony like a chord in music where if all the notes are correct and they're in harmony it's a beautiful chord but if they're not correct it's uh, discord it's imbalance and that imbalance can uh, manifest itself as illness and sometimes injury and the areas that I look at in balance have to do with exercise nutrition stress management sleep management spirit and patterns of behavior so the way I would approach this whole topic has to do with those aspects and that's where I would like to start but before I start about what someone does just before sending their kid off to school for the day I, I think it's even more important to start in the concept of deciding to have children mm. because and that's where I want to make my first uh, venture into today's talk when people decide as a family they want to have children there are a lot of aspects that have to be covered and children are uh, I use this word affectionately but once you have a child it's relentless <laughs> <laughs> and I've said that to friends who have uh, decided to have children and they laughed at me before they had the children and then five years later and 10 years later and 15 and 20 years later they come back to me and say relentless <laughs> so I think it's someone it, said it, that about marriage uh, marriage uh, may be the same maybe not uh, I think there are ways to end marriage but you can't end children <laughs> at least normally anyway but I, I think it's, it's very important in the whole process of getting your child ready for school to get yourself ready for having a child. Mm. And I would like to spend just a few minutes on that in terms of patterns of behavior because the things that you do as an adult and being uh, getting ready to have a child you need to make sure that you are willing to accept that you need to have a healthy lifestyle and be balanced in order to have a child. Now, clearly mm -hmm. you can have a child without being balanced, but then we see uh, imbalanced children in an imbalanced world. So mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. that each of us should take the opportunity when it's time to decide to have a child is to see if you're willing to potentially change patterns of your behavior to make sure that you are healthy uh, at the time of conceiving a child both both of the parents need to be healthy and have a good lifestyle and during the pregnancy it's important to have a good lifestyle uh, of health eating well exercise stress management sleep management spirit and mm -hmm. looking at your patterns of behavior once you decide to have the child realize that whatever you're putting into your body at that time uh, may affect the child and whether it be a food or whether it be an idea or a thought or an energy uh, that may be part of where your child is going to come from and I think that having communications and discussions with your partner throughout the process is a very important thing 
and when you start coming close to the uh, delivery date, I think the next important thing is to have the discussion is how you're going to have the delivery. Is it going to be the normal delivery in a hospital or are you going to have a delivery on an island somewhere or underwater? You're going to have a midwife. What is your plan? And you should always, if your plan, I believe, if your plan is not the normal plan of being in a hospital, again, I call that normal because we're in a Western society and that's where I come from. If your plan is to be in a hospital, that's a good thing. But if your plan is not to be in a hospital, then I think you should always have a plan B in case things may happen and maybe even a plan C and work that out with your doctors and with your uh, midwife or birthing coach and your and your partner. And the other things that have to be discussed at, the, at that time or have the discussions anyway have to do with uh, other things that you're going to do for and to your child right away and to the things that come up if it's a male. One is the concept of circumcision. Uh, and I'm not going to get into the controversies of it right now or the discussions pro and con in either way. What I'm getting into right now is that it's important to have the discussions and see that you both agree with this. The other is immunizations and vaccinations. Those are uh, it's part of a legal system in most of our country, in most of the states in our country, and there's various philosophies on vaccinations and immunizations. And if you choose to go in the normal route, uh, have discussions with your doctor and make sure you're agreeing on that. If you choose a different route, uh, such as either no vaccinations or staggered types of scheduling, that's something that also needs to be discussed before you even have a child. So that takes us up to the point of deciding to have a child, going through a pregnancy, and actually the birth. Mm -hmm. So do you have any thoughts on that before we start talking about now we have a little one? Now you have a little one. Well, I, 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 I can understand what you're saying, and I, I get the, the path already that you're building. It's really about the communication and decision-making that we're about health that you're setting a precedent for even before the child reaches of school age, basically. So I am in total agreement of that, of, as you very well know, knowing me. And uh, I, I think that is a very interesting process because, you know, I think as parents, we do run into that all the time where um, as new parents, you're, you're continuously uh, faced with another decision that you have to make. You're, you know, as you say, immunization or circumcision, then immunization. And, and this, this all seems to come at quite a, uh, a, quite a load like that hits you one after the other at a very, very early time. And then, you know, you find the balance after that and, you know, the other decisions that you have to make. So I, yes. <clears throat> I'm proposing now is that in, instead of making it a heavy load at the moment when you're excited about the birth and you're excited about the child and naming of the child and everything else, you have to make these other decisions. Some of the discussions should be made even potentially before you decide to conceive and or at least during the pregnancy. And with the help of a coach or your physician or spirit guides, whoever you're you get your information from and the way you want to work with that, I think the discussion should be had before that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, I I know as a as a, when I was a very new parent, I know that the discussions took place, but until the child is actually birthed out, and the reality in your face with actually having to make the decision, then it 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 still took time. You know, it still took time. It took even more conversations because as we go through life and time, it. it uh, other people have uh, suggestions or their perspectives, and it's ever, I think it's <clears throat> continuously growing, basically, and expanding. It is, but it's, it's always best to have the conversations when there, there isn't yes. an emotional charge. Because once the issue comes up and there's an emotional charge, if you've had conversations, you at least have a place to start from and mm -hmm. some ground in centering. Whereas if you leave it until the last moment, uh, then you may find that the two of you disagree. And then one of you is going to have to compromise. And that may uh, be a situation where that's going to be part of your relationship forever. That, well, you you didn't want the vaccinations at first, and now you did, and, and something happened, and that's your fault. Right, right, right. So I, I really think it's a good idea to have those conversations. <clears throat> so then moving moving on to now you have a baby in front of you. And I think that the more things that you do from the normal point of view, uh, you can stay within a normal process. But when you start to go into variations and you do alternative things, like you decide that at this moment in time, alternative is, for example, not to have vaccinations and immunizations, then it becomes even more important to start looking at patterns of behavior and developing patterns of behavior for yourself and your child right from the very beginning. Because children take things in. Uh, from the environment, and they assimilate them into their brains. But then once they're assimilated into the brain, lots of different things happen, and they come up with a solution that helps them to either get a positive feedback from the person who's giving them the information or uh, a negative feedback sometimes to make them not do something to teach them uh, about a pattern of behavior, but it's also important to realize that sometimes they do it based on what they know at the time. And we see this forever with people as adults that have patterns of behavior that they learned as a child uh, for survival purposes when they didn't really understand what nutrition meant, but they were being fed something that didn't taste that good. Uh, so it's very important to understand that the patterns of behavior that you instill in your child, and not just based on what you're telling them, but also how you act, are going to stay with them and either help them in their life or cause issues in their life later on. Mm -hmm. So one of the things about patterns of behavior that I see is that when you're trying to teach someone something, especially healthy in a healthy manner the more you do it with love and compassion and nurturing even if they don't understand it totally they get a good warm feeling from it and it and it seems to resonate well 
Whereas if you're doing it with fear, anger, frustration, and you're trying to teach them something, they will learn it, but they will learn it uh, under the auspices mm -hmm. of fear and anger and frustration. And when it comes to another point in their life, when they want to make their own changes, when they're adult enough to make some of their own decisions, uh, depending on which way you taught them, through love or, or through fear, that's how they're going to be able to make changes. If it's through love and it's a, something that can be changed, it'll be easier. If it's through fear, it'll be more difficult. So mm -hmm. patterns of behavior is probably the most important thing that we will look at today as we develop some of the aspects of <clears throat> what should we do when we send our child to school. I think that is so important, Glenn. I think you've hit on a very, very clear point there that uh, those behaviors that we s instill in them from very early on really make such a, a difference on how they react when they're in school and what they begin to do and the practices that they, they choose to do, even at a very young age. Sure. And the entire field of psychiatry, uh, not the entire field, but psychology and psychiatry, it's always, you know, the, the thing we hear is, well, how, how do you feel about your mother? And what did she do? Did she leave you in an aisle in a shopping center, uh, you know, when you were a child and now you have abandonment issues? All of these things, the child is a sponge taking in things and assimilating them. And it's up to you as a parent to help them assimilate those things in a good way so that they come out of it uh, confident and with love and healthy. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's interesting. So, <clears throat> um, and also the it, it's uh, interesting because I see quite often, um, and finding that balance of how you're relating to the child because we want as a parent so many wonderful things for them and we want to care for them and we want to protect them and and sometimes it's finding that balance of 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 uh being like over over extreme in some of those areas so to say yes and that's actually that's a perfect uh segue into the next statement i'm going to make is that as you're teaching your child about health and healthy living and healthy consciousness with all of the different aspects that we have and will talk about it's very important to not make them so obsessed with health that they become a hypochondriac and they're continuously worrying, oh, I have, you know, I have a pimple, that means I have this, or uh, you know, I think I have a fever today, so that their whole life is based on I'm worried about health. It's a fine line, and it's not, a, not an easily definable one. I think that the, the line comes from the two parents having great communication and great communication with the child to make sure that they're not obsessed with health and that's all they think about and that's all they talk about. So you can't even get them to go out and play in the dirt or the mud or it's raining or something like that. There's still a process that we need to enjoy life rather than be so totally focused all the time on one aspect of it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's very important to find that Again, we use the word balance uh, or fine line, and I think that uh, we'll continue to do that. Mm. 
Uh, how do you feel about um, uh, uh, like children, like really getting into the dirt and you know picking things off the ground, putting it in their mouth, and um, you know there there is that that whole other perspective of of you know the, it builds their immune system. They need to get dirty and they need to like toughen up. So so it's okay for them to to be doing things like that. I think you know as a child, uh, very early on, they are trying to discover who they are and how they relate to their environment. So even as a baby, we th- we see things where they're experimenting and watching, mm-hmm. grab things, and everything goes into the mouth. And that's a way of learning things. But I do think that there are appropriate instructions that as a child does grow, and assimilate and understand certain things, you can tell them that certain things are dirty and that they shouldn't be doing that. So that will be a pattern of behavior that they don't continue into their life. However, we also have to understand that at some point you're going to actually turn your back on a child or you're going to let them go out on their own outside to play and they're still going to do certain things. Mm -hmm. Then you have that aspect of, okay, we are building up the immune system and we're doing um, the things that we need to. And if they get a cold or a flu, that's part of building up the immune system. But uh, so I, I agree with that and I believe that's an important part of what we do. And many people that uh, talk about not having vaccinations believe that also, believing that it's important to get those flus and the chickenpox and the mumps and that makes you stronger and that helps your body detoxify things. So I'm okay with some of that, but it's still it's still a good pattern of behavior to learn that you should be cleaner than dirtier and understand at some point uh, when the child can assimilate it that some things can go in their mouth and some things cannot go in their mouth and some experimentation is okay. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. or that you're doing a healthy lifestyle if that child is eating well and getting enough sleep and exercise so that their immune system is growing and getting stronger, then they will be able to handle that uh, little dirt in the mouth every once in a while uh, at some level. Clearly, pounds of dirt will, will not be a good idea. But uh, sticking their finger in their mouth uh, is just part of it. But that's an important part of some of the things that we're going to be talking about in terms of getting a child ready for school. And I guess we could talk about that a little now. Uh, one of the ways that infections are transmitted are through hand-to-mouth things, uh, orally and through the nasal passages and things like that. So hand-washing becomes an extremely important part of the whole process of teaching patterns of behavior. And when I talk about hand washing, I think that it's a great Mm. ritual and a great healing process to teach children that every time they are going to eat something, they should wash their hands first. And every time they come out of the bathroom, they should wash their hands. And if you teach that with essentially no exception, mm-hmm. then develop that pattern of behavior that will help prevent 
a great many of the viruses that they get when they go to school mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. kids that don't learn it, you know, don't wash their hands after going to the bathroom, then hit, hand the other kid a sandwich or a piece of a fruit and it's dirty and that's where the contamination mm -hmm. comes. If a child learns, no exception, washing their hands, which means, again, going back to the original process of you have to do it also. Yes. To teach them that. And if you do it through fun and love and compassion and say this is a fun thing that we all do together and then you do it as a ritual, it becomes something that's okay. Remember, when we go in to do surgery, we go through a oh, ritual. And that's a big ritual for us. Yes. But we don't argue it because we know uh, at that time our brains are able to assimilate there's dirt on our hands. There's bacteria on our hands. We're about to enter into someone else's sanctified uh, temple or their body. We don't want to contaminate them. So we wash, and we wash really well. You don't have to take it to that extreme, but I think it's a good idea to teach mm -hmm. hand washing to children, again, before a meal and after going to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and it is that. quite amazing. Um, Glenn, I had uh, heard somewhere before that um you know the the eyes the that you know how a lot of people rub their eyes i had heard that in that can also contaminate very easily because of the ducts in, in our eyes and and not only that but one of the other things we'll talk about a little bit later is pink eye yes one, they one of the five or six things that most kids can get when they start going to school. Yes, the eye can do that, but most of the time it's the nasal passages and the oral passages. Certainly mm -hmm. the eye can do it, and it's important that, especially when kids rub their mouths, rub their faces, these are opportunities. And the skin itself, the skin is a great protective barrier, but if a kid has a low immune system and they don't have good nutrition and they're not getting the right sleep and they're not exercising well, and even a little child can be stressed out, uh, then that simple rubbing of the eye or putting the finger in the mouth after it's been somewhere that has a contaminant, that mm -hmm. person will have a much higher uh, probability and possibility of getting an infectious process mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. dealt with. Mm. I think another area, <clears throat> aside from the washing, is the sneeze and the cough. For this is something that's pretty recent, and I think I saw it more after we started seeing some of the different flus that were coming around the world. The swine flu and the bird flu, and people were starting to actually understand that flus go from person to person, and they could be transmitted, and if you get it, then you have to deal with that. And one of the things I started seeing that I had never seen when I was in medical school is learning how to cough or sneeze into an elbow. Mm -hmm. the, into the arm rather than the hand because, again, the, the normal pattern was you're going to sneeze, you put your hands up to your face, you sneeze in, and then the next thing you know, you're on the street and you're shaking hands with someone you just you know, haven't seen in a long time. And you might, aside from being excited to see them, you've just given them a wonderful gift. <laughs> Hello, it's been a long time. Here you go. <laughs> You'll be thinking of me for the next few weeks. Maybe you won't want to see me again. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so 
I think it's very important to teach them that habit of uh, if they're going to cough, to cough into an elbow or into an arm and not into their hands. Mm -hmm. or, and it might be something that they can even teach other children. You mm -hmm. know, sometimes children teach children better than parents. Teach. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And if a child is exhibiting good patterns of behavior and mentions it to their good friend in a good way and they and they learn that you did it through loving, uh, they will do it the same way to teach their other friends from a loving, passionate point of view rather than saying, stop that, you're coughing, you're going to make me sick and don't do that again and you better cough into your elbow or <laughs> I'll not be your friend anymore. <laughs> but it doesn't necessarily work because it can bring out reactions in other people. So those are two of the very biggest things that I think are important for children to know, the hand washing and mm -hmm. the coughing. Also, an awareness of someone else that may be sick or have something. And this starts out, again, as parents. I believe that it's really important as a parent, if you're going to have a child and bring another human onto this planet, I think the idea should be to bring a healthy, good citizen onto the planet. And that means you have to start doing homework and research. You have to start learning a little bit about anatomy and physiology. You don't have to learn the same amount that we learn in medical school, but it's good to know what your child's normal anatomy is. Mm. So, and I don't mean just the outside anatomy that you could see, but maybe looking into their mouth and looking at how the throat structures are. So when the child comes home and says, I have a sore throat, and you look in the mouth, and suddenly you're seeing uh, two big areas that are giant and red that you never saw before, and they have uh, white or green or black pus all over them, uh, the tonsillitis, <laughs> bacterial tonsillitis or a strep throat, you may not diagnose it as strep throat, but you will be able to say, that's not part of the normal anatomy I've seen in my child since birth. Mm -hmm. And recognize that. And the same with a skin lesion or a deformity or something like that. So I really think it's another important thing that the parents have a responsibility to learn anatomy uh, a little bit. And even buy a book on it to see what looks right so that you can become a part of your own health care and the health care of your child. Mm -hmm. And then take that to another level of learning what's normal in your child by observation. For example, how many people take a temperature of their child when they're normal? Yeah, me. <laughs> of course you, and, and you are the icon. I don't even have to give the lecture. I can just say, you know, this will do it. True. I, I mean, I've always believed if, if we know what, uh, if we know ourselves and our children, you're absolutely right. When something doesn't look right, like if you look into their face or their eyes and, and you can see it's a different color, it's almost immediate if you have that awareness or their it. ear, you know? Exactly. Or their ear. And you can even get some equipment that can let you look into an ear a little bit. You don't, you may not diagnose some rare disease, but all, you don't have to do that. What mm -hmm. you have to do is diagnose normal, not something I've seen before, normal, abnormal. That's, yeah. that, that's the extent that you have to go to 
you can certainly bring it to uh, a deeper level if you want and if you have an interest in that. But as a parent, that may be all you need to do. Just continuously know my child's normal temperature is 99 or my child's normal temperature is 96. Mm -hmm. It's 98.6. So when a child suddenly doesn't feel well and if their normal temperature is 96 and suddenly they're at 98, and you go, oh, that's normal. But it's not normal for that child. And if their temperature is normally 99 and suddenly they're at 99.5, you know they have a little temperature, but it's not something to get really uh, crazy about just to watch it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that it's important to spend a lot of time observing your child, what's normal, what isn't normal. And that just isn't, that just isn't uh, about fevers and uh, anatomy. It's also about eating habits and sleeping habits. Watch them sleep. Mm-hmm. And pa- new parents will, of course, watch them sleep. They may never stop watching them for a little while. <laughs> you know, are they breathing? How, often uh, yeah. they breathing? <laughs> How many breaths were that? How many breaths per minute? Are they breathing clearly, comfortably? Does it sound stuffy? Things like that. These are all things that parents can do to help their children before something happens and to be prepared if something does happen to catch it very early and maybe prevent either something really bad or a long course of something that's not too bad, but just pretty annoying and mm-hmm. stops the normal routine of life. Yes, yes. Oh, very good points. Very good points. Thank you. And uh, <clears throat> it's, it's that awareness, really. And I have a, a little book that I keep that I notate everything down in because um, I also believe that as children grow up, in different phases, like almost in, in the earlier, in the earlier from infant to about a year and a half, they grow so quickly, you know, they grow so quickly and their rhythms change and their body temperatures change like crazy. It's like off the charts. It's kind of, it's like really amazing. I mean, the human body is such an amazing computer, you know, <laughs> um, you know, and, and it's, it's so great that you say that and what you've just said, Glenn, because um, the kids run at different temperatures. Some run so hot on a, on an average daily basis, you know, and I know my child did that. It was like, there was months there where he ran hot. It was not a fever. He felt great. He was totally healthy, but he ran hot. Yeah. And you don't have to panic over it. You just, yeah. yeah. Part of it. I'm going to take it to another level. And I, based on discussions that you and I have had in the past, I know you're going to be in agreement with this. Uh, but I think it's important to bring it up also. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, the body is a great processor. It takes food in and then it gets rid of toxins and it takes drink in and gets rid of toxins. So part of the way it gets rid of things is through the urine and through uh, the bowel movements. I think it's a good idea to check your children's urine and bowel movements those are sometimes great signs of something going wrong at a time when they may not be able to explain it to you well because mm-hmm. they don't have language yet or at another time when they have language. But now you're, oh, mom, I don't want to talk to you about this. But uh, l- we do that with our pets. Yes. You know, and it gives us indicators of things that might not be right where we could pick it up early and uh, – you 
know, we already talked about whether we can prevent something or stop something when it's early. So mm -hmm. looking at the bodily fluids for a while, are things coming out of their nose that uh, looks normal or it looks abnormal? Yeah. And as you get that, that's an important thing. That's great. I'm so glad you say that because I've had parents say to me, what? You look at his poop? I go, all the time. No, no. <laughs> all I, the time because I know that I have to change his, his, what his intake is. Right. You know, exactly. if it's getting to a certain point where it's getting a little firmer, then I know that he needs more fruits and vegetables or something to, to soften it up. I mean, he doesn't have any issues with constipation like so many children do, mm -hmm. you know, because of tracking that. Or if his urine smells a little stronger today or is a little more yellow or murky, it's like water, you know, more water, heighten the water, no yeah. juices, you know, it's like... It's yeah. so amazing. I, that's what I mean. The, the human body is so amazing. It's it's spectacular to to see all these signs. I know, and that's what's great about medicine. But you know, understand that at some point when they go, but mom, I'm 34. You don't have to look at my urine anymore. At oh no! Point, by that point, I hope they know how to look at their own. <laughs> they learn good habits from their mom and dad, and they've learned healthy habits. They will do that, and they will pass that on, and we will have more and more educated children that are health-conscious and doing the right things to become great, healthy citizens on our globe. So let's begin uh, actually in preparing to get a child to go to school now for the first time or something like that. <clears throat> there are a few things that I look at uh, that you know, other people do look at. So most of the things I'm going to talk about are, you know, they're out there, but it's just bringing it back into the consciousness of things. Uh, it's important for a child to get enough sleep. Children need at least nine to 10 hours of good sleep each night, especially when they're young. And they learn to, they need to learn to have really good sleep habits. So when summer is starting to end and it's about two or three weeks before school is about to start, it's a good idea to start mm -hmm. getting to bed a little bit earlier. Uh, when we talked uh, in a Magical Medical Tour with Dr. Andrew Binder about sleep, two of the things that he brought up that were very important were to make sure you get up the same time every day to set your clock correctly and to get to sleep around the same time. So when school is, you know, summertime, maybe a little later, but as it's coming closer to school, I suggest getting kids getting into bed and getting ready for sleep uh, almost at the same schedule they would be preparing for school. And that includes having a good night's sleep and making sure that computers and televisions and all these other things are off and not around a while before getting ready for sleep. And then in the, determining the time that you need to wake them up, I believe that having a good breakfast is very important to start a child with on their way to school for so many different reasons. And throughout their life, it's an important pattern of behavior to have. So that when you decide on the time they're going to wake up, make sure it's a time where they can get up, get ready, and have a good meal. And this brings up another small point to me. I think not just about what you eat, you know, eating the right foods. I remember I have a friend who has a friend who 
whenever her children did something good, they were rewarded with broccoli. Yeah. Kids loved it. And it was only once they got to school where they went, whoa, I'm getting broccoli and you're getting a Snickers bar. Right. What's wrong here? So it's, but it's not just what you eat. It's teaching children a pattern of behavior of how to eat. And that includes honoring the meal, sitting down, making it a meal, making it a time to uh, appreciate the food, appreciate being with family. It's not something that you learn how to eat while you're running and just get it down because it's fuel and you haven't eaten and you're hungry and you're getting lightheaded and dizzy. Eating should be an important process that we learn how to develop a pattern so that we're always into the meal, enjoying the meal. And there's so much written on this. So that's an important part of that, uh, even though it's related to sleep in this, this particular part of the <laughs> we, oh, we I'm, I'm unorthodox in that way. Because we go for our, our mile walk in the morning. So it's it's like such an early morning as it is. So here is my son running down with his breakfast in his hand, noshing as we have family time on our walk. <laughs> well, these are these are balances that everyone has to look at because he he may have good patterns with the walk and the family time and those are beautiful things that may trump some of the other issues because of that. But at other times when it is time to sit and eat and it's not running, it may be good to teach that eating is important and the way that you eat is important. And not only the way that you eat, but also one of the things that we see, especially in this country, is uh, finish your meal. Finish your meal. Yes. I don't know that that's always healthy. We mm-hmm. should, if, if you give the child a right proportion, that may be okay. But if you're overstuffing the child and getting a child to where they walk away from the table stuffed, that's going to be a pattern of behavior that they have for the rest of their life. You don't leave a table until you're stuffed. Yes. And that has manifested in so many disease states that we're seeing more and more in these days mm. because the immune system in the gut and everything else that I think pattern of behavior in terms of how to eat is also very important. Mm, interesting. We'll move interesting. past. We talked about hand washing already mm-hmm. and we talked about breakfast. So I I think those are some of the very big things. So now we're talking about getting a child even more ready to go to school. And there are a few things that I would want to talk about that people don't necessarily talk about. And then we'll later on, maybe we'll talk about some of the illnesses and things like that. But I think I'm trying to cover some things that aren't always talked about. And the the general things can always be looked up in the Internet or somewhere else. Mm Mm-hmm. When you have a child that's getting ready for school, I believe that before they start going to school, they should have an eye examination. And I'm not talking about the eye exam where you just look at the eye chart and you could see the E and then a few other letters. That just tells you a little bit. But one of the saddest things we see is a child that is not learning because they can't see the blackboard and nobody knows about it. And they go through one or two or three years of school and they're Mm. being... And teachers are thinking they don't, you know, teachers are really good and sometimes they can pick up on this. But in busy classrooms, they may not see some subtle effects. 
and it's important that if a child has an eye problem, you need to give them the best shot at learning by having corrections uh, before they go to school, not finding out two years later when everyone is passing them and they're not getting it. And some of the things you can look at when you see your child is if they're one inch away from the TV, mm. you know, or they're using their fingers to read because they're losing their place because they can't see it, a lot of squinting, a lot of eye rubbing. These are maybe some indicators that will help you as a parent to notice that maybe there is something going on and I should get an eye exam. So I mm. completely think that before a child starts school, they should have an eye exam. And I include in the eye exam a hearing exam because the same thing happens. If a child can't hear well and for some reason, let's say, you know, my name is Wallman, so it starts with W. And when I started school, yes. alphabetically. So W was at the back of the room. If I had a hearing problem at that point, I may hear a third of the words the teacher's telling me. I don't know that it's something wrong. I'm a five-year-old. I'm a six-year-old. I don't know the difference. But they're going to miss out, and other kids are going to start excelling, and you're going to wonder what's wrong. You're going to go through major uh, anguish about, oh, what's wrong with my child? They're not smart enough. And then you start looking at the medical points, and you go through all these testings, and and look, and then they have they get developed with or diagnosed with ADD or an attention disorder, and then they're on medication. Mm -hmm. yeah. So a whole cycle can happen when all you had to do was get an eye test and a hearing test and figure some things out and get them better. And mm -hmm. remember, of course, that when kids get certain diseases, uh, a, a bad infection at an early age, that can go to their brain and affect some of these parts of their brain. So. That's a very important part. Mm. Immunizations. Uh, I think this is a very important topic. Uh, I, I've looked at the science on both sides. I've looked as a natural healer and as a scientist. And I don't want to get into the controversy of it right now. Most states require it uh, for certain reasons. It's because they work and the concept of uh, vaccinations is a good concept. Whether the vaccination is prepared in a good manner is questionable. And there are studies now that saying maybe we can do uh, prepare vaccinations so they're more healthy and we can get the benefits. Mm -hmm. I know I look at both sides and I've seen my father was a school principal in a low economic area. And that because of the low economic area, uh, there was an outbreak of diphtheria mm. because kids were not immunized and some of the kids died. And these are elementary school kids and they died because of something that could have been prevented by a vaccine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So look at it from that point of view. I don't see the argument. When I look at it from the other point of view of what's in there, we talk about the mercuries and other uh, toxins that may be in there. I see the argument there, although even that has some arguments that say we're testing one type of mercury and it's a different type of mercury in the um, in the vaccine. But there are also people that are starting to do studies and the studies are not specific yet enough to mm -hmm. find it's actually happening in the vaccine that really does cause the problem. Certainly uh, some of the incidents in India we're seeing right now where I think there was a uh, some kids that were vaccinated and died uh, oh, no. and it's heartbreaking. 
it's just totally heartbreaking and nobody wants that. And there's going to be a lot of research that comes out of that. And certainly you could say <clears throat> the kid was really healthy. They got their shot. 15 minutes later, they were dead. We don't have to start looking for esoteric things. It's probably something in the vaccination. Mm -hmm. But when looking, the kid was healthy, got the shot, was fine. And then six months later, they developed something. Was it the shot? Mm -hmm. It could still be it. But it, the studies have not really been done. When you listen to a lot of the scientists, they know that there's controversy and they know there's problems and they're thinking healthy more than unnatural. Right. But, the, but they don't have the science that says it's definite yet. They end up at the day saying it may be the cause mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to know. And we need to, as parents and as healthcare providers and just as global citizens, need to have the best for all of us. Mm -hmm. So vaccinations are important to think about and have the discussions about. Uh, the answer is not in yet totally, but uh, I think that you need to be aware of it. And if if there's a real interest in this, maybe we can look at this in uh, one or two of the episodes of Magical Medical Tour. That would be great. I think that would be uh, something that very interesting. That those insights, just a few insights that you gave us right now, is uh, very, very helpful, I, I do believe. And, and also, I do believe if um, people also look at the, the awareness of the area that they live in as well and the schools that the children will be attending, etc., I think that also has a lot to do with uh, the decision that you're going to make. That's right. And there's also, you know, there's always perspective. We are, we are in the perspective right now of the benefit, for example, of polio vaccines, okay? where we don't see polio. But if we didn't have a polio vaccine and yeah. many children were coming down with polio and were on respirators and having all sorts of musculoskeletal problems and central nervous system problems, we might look at it differently and say, well, I don't want that for my child. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's very controversial, but it's something that we all need to be aware of and tuned into and make your own decisions with, but make them educated decisions with your doctor and with other people that you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Another minute, you mentioned earlier about how quickly children grow. <laughs> and one of the things that I think I would like to talk about is foot measurement. Just don't oh, discuss fun. <clears throat> a lot, but what we see is that children are growing, their feet are growing, they've had a summer of wearing one type of shoe, and probably by the beginning of the summer to the end, their foot has grown a little bit, but they're still wearing the same shoes. So I think as an honoring for school and something fun, but also for health purposes, good idea to measure your child's feet and get them maybe some new shoes to start school with and keep measuring their feet. At certain ages, they say you should measure them every six months, other ages, you should go, you know, a little longer. But this is something that you don't really need to make a doctor's appointment for. You could just get a tape measure. Mm -hmm. Or you could go to a shoe store and use one of those shoe things, you know, shoe scales. And uh, I remember when I was growing up, uh, they had one of these fluoroscopes where you stood under it and your feet were under it. And it was like an x-ray where they could see your feet. Uh, it was probably dangerous. <laughs> I was going to say, wow, I don't remember those. Well. That's because you didn't grow up when I grew up. <laughs> but more importantly is being aware that 
uncomfortable shoes that are too small can cause foot problems in a child, which mm-hmm. could be, first of all, painful and uncomfortable, which they don't need. But second of all, they can manifest in ways that you begin to ambulate. And so you start ambulating to get rid of pain, and then suddenly you're throwing your knees out, your ankles out, your hips out, your back out, and now you're a child uh, that has uh, all sorts of joint problems as a young adult and as an adult. And some of these things could be uh, avoided by just making sure feet are okay. Mm -hmm. Feet are so important, we ignore them. Let's not ignore them. And if everybody watches Trinity of Life and hears this, then they will no longer ignore that. So we've done something really successful. And so uh, that's only if the shoes are too small. What if they're too big? You know how some people buy two sizes bigger? I don't know why, because the child wears through the shoes so fast. Not good either. Uh, As an adult, we like our shoes to fit. They want to be comfortable, and if they're not comfortable as an adult, there's no reason to believe they're comfortable as a child. The only difference is the child may not know any better because the parents are telling them, this is the shoe you wear. So with three inches extra in the toe, that's not good either. And they will, again, change their gait because of an abnormal uh, process. And having foot problems throughout life is not a happy thing just in itself and then manifesting all the way up the entire spine up to the head. Everything, every time you put your foot down, pressure goes up through your entire body up to your head and it can affect things all the way up and down. So measurement, another good thing to think about. The next thing that I'm seeing that I never saw, I remember when I was going to school and because I was really interested in studying, I used to love to take you know, all my books home every night, six or seven books. And suddenly every kid now has a backpack. Yes. And I think that you need to, if you're going to have a child taking a backpack to school, there's a few things that you need to do. It's the same as feet. You're putting a weight on their back that has the potential to cause neck, shoulder, and back problems. We are now seeing in the emergency departments and orthopedic surgeons are seeing more kids with back pains and back problems than we've seen before. Mm. And many of the people believe that it's because of the actual backpack. So if you're going to have your child before you have a backpack, there's a few other possibilities you can consider. One, and this is not necessarily an easy one to do, but if you can afford an ex- a second set of books, keep a bare set of books at home. So the child doesn't have to take the books home and carry them back and forth each day. That's not necessarily an easy or an inexpensive thing to do. Mm-hmm. Another possibility is see if the teacher can give homework assignments on a, a computer disk and bring the disk home and leave the books there. So those are two little options that we can think about. Probably not always going to work in most general schools, but worth at least thinking about. So now we get back to the backpack. Mm-hmm. If you're going to get the child a backpack, then you should do it with the same concept that you did the foot, with the eye with the eye protection, with hearing and everything else. Do it with science and do it with uh, love. Making sure that it's a good frame backpack. Uh, some people talk about the weight should be somewhere 
I don't know, 15% of the child's body weight. That's variable. Mm -hmm. But certainly don't want to make it very heavy. You want to make sure that it has a good frame. You want to make sure that it uh, sits well in a certain area. And this might be something you can go to a place that sells backpacks, maybe a sporting store or a camping store where they actually know things rather than some of the stores where they're just selling it as a product where they can measure for you and say, this is where it should be on your child. Mm -hmm. When you're getting it for your child, there's a few other things you should do. One, teach them that they should always have both straps on and wear it the right way. You know that once they leave your house, I watched this when I was in Japan, uh, many times the kids would leave for school wearing their uh, classic plaid little skirt or little pants and the white shirt. And they would have their little roller thing with them carrying their books and everything. But inside, they also had an outfit that they would, as soon as they were away from their parents, they went into the bushes, <laughs> changed into these wild outfits. And it was fantastic because they were doing it with the other kids. So one of the things that you need to teach the children is it's not cool to just sling it over one shoulder. It's designed to be used a certain way and wear it that way all the time. You know, throwing it over one shoulder because you're cool uh, is cool. And I like cool, but it may not be cool when they have a back problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Final thing I would say about the backpack is make sure that they clean it out periodically. You don't need to have last year's homework. <laughs> in this year's uh, classroom and there might be things that are just gaining weight or there might be they remember that they forgot to put their candy bar or their popsicle in there and it's been in there for a while and so clean it out and I think that's all I have to say on that uh, well luckily these days they're also making backpacks with the rollies so they're like a, a travel on carry on bag which uh, um, I've seen them, the older kids have them now, when most, most of them are like rolling them into class as opposed to actually slinging them on their shoulders, which is a nice thing to see. And that also causes problems, uh, interestingly, as you bring up the rollies, because suddenly the rollie and you're having to lift it up a curb or lift it up some stairs and, and the child is not lifting it the right way mm. or lift it up onto a bus uh, to get to class or uh, and you're carrying it through dirt and part of it pulls and you get yanked in a certain way. So rollers have to play, but they also, everything has a yin and a yang. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, my. Well, thank goodness. Uh, that's one good thing about the computers now. So much of the homework is going online now. Yeah, and that's so, perfect. So we're closer to actual having a child in a class, which is what this talk was about. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm not ready yet. So I didn't expect you to be. Of course, there was no chance that I would do it the normal way. Um, the next part is when you're choosing the school and getting your child ready for school, I think it's a good idea to have a conversation with the teacher maybe with an administrator, and also with the school nurse. There's two possibilities. One child is perfectly healthy, and they're the perfect, most uh, gifted child in the world, and you have nothing to worry about. Or your child has some issues. It might simply be allergies. It might be some kind of a disorder. Uh, a number of things. They may need to be on medications. 
So I believe that it's really important to make sure that the school and the school nurse or whoever represents the school nurse, some, some schools don't have school nurses, that you as a parent or both parents have a conversation with the nurse and make sure of a few things. One, about your concerns about if there's a problem uh, and also any medical concerns, allergies or medications or things that you're concerned about, how you want to be contacted, when you want to be contacted, and also making sure that your contact information is up to date. So if you move from one place to another, make sure that the new contact information is up to date. And have that conversation with the school nurse uh, before your child goes to school so they know you, they may know the child, and they can then uh, know how to communicate with you. And again, right from the beginning, we always talked about the communication. So that was big. Big mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, so now we finally get the child to school. Uh, I'm exhausted. <laughs> I, I and you're not even a parent. I was just about to say, I can't even imagine what it would be like to do this as a parent because I'm doing this for one hour on Trinity of Life, <laughs> not for that uh, relentless amount of classes that they have to go through year in and year out for many years. Uh, many blessings to all parents who do the great job and make most of the kids great. So I love that. So what are some of the major illnesses that we see in school? Well, there's usually about five or six things that we see. Mm. One is, uh, and in no special order, one is pink eye or conjunctivitis, mm -hmm. usually caused by a virus uh, and caused by rubbing of eyes, transmitted from one child to another usually, uh, easily treated. If you recognize it because you've done your homework and you've listened to this talk and you now know the normal anatomy of your child and how they act and suddenly you see that one eye looks different than the other eye, they look, uh, you know, they look like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> you know uh, Glenn, can you share with us the symptoms of pink eye? Sure. Usually it starts out with a little irritation to the eye so the child starts rubbing it. Then you start seeing that the white part of the eye uh, starts becoming red or pink. And then it can become grainy, and then you can see a discharge. One of the things you might see is early in the morning when they first wake up, the whole eye is crusted over, and the other eye may not be. Or when you know what their normal way of looking is, they don't have crust over their <laughs> eyes. But they do have this, you know, it looks like a fondue. <laughs> then you know something's wrong, and they probably got it from someone else and, and did something. And it's easily treatable. Sometimes if it's a virus, it may just go away on its own. Mm -hmm. Highly contagious. Sometimes it's bacterial, and it's a good idea to communicate with your doctor, and they may want to put them on medications. But it's basically a red, irritated eye with a little bit of a discharge. Uh, it normally uh, goes through its course and gets better, but it's highly contagious. So it's very important if a child comes home with pink eye that you don't volunteer as a family. Let's all get it. <laughs> all do this. So you want to be very careful about having the child, again, wash their hands. And you don't want to use the same towel that the child used to, to wipe their hands. Ah, that's a good point. So they have to keep all of their... Uh, 
all of the things that they have to take care of themselves become theirs for a moment. You don't want to use that same towel. Uh, so that's what has to be done there. Uh, another one is head lice. Uh, that's pretty easy to find. Usually comes, uh, it's a, suddenly the child has an itchy scalp, and if you look carefully, you don't want to get too close because those little critters will jump up into your eye and take over your world. <laughs> I've, I've, I didn't realize how extreme that can get in a very short time, too. Um, extreme. Uh, yeah, extreme, where they have to actually have exterminators come to homes. Uh, and and that's important. And you need to see this. The kid is itching and their scalp looks like it has dandruff. And if you look carefully, you could see uh, the little mother lice uh, laying eggs. You won't actually see them laying the eggs, but you'll see the eggs. And that has to be treated. It's easily treated with a shampoo. It's a medicated shampoo. And everyone in the family should probably do it. They always tell you to... Uh, treat the bedding, you know, the pillowcase and sheets and blankets and everything else mm. uh, with the same shampoo. And I'll add something else to that is if your child sleeps with a little stuffed animal, uh, that stuffed animal may now be the, uh, the garden for the new lice that have just entered the home. So you want to uh, medicate the stuffed animal also. So isn't that interesting? Because I had always thought growing up that the lice love the hair because it's just a great place to, it's warm and usually, and, you know, and sort of like a friendly little hideaway for them. I didn't realize that they could survive off the body yeah. as well. Can. It's and like do. fleas. Yes, exactly. They, they're happier in the little head garden. It's warm uh, and cozy. <laughs> we love it. We love it. But uh, let them find their own place, not on oh. us on our children. So just be aware of that. Uh, another one is um, chicken pox. Mm. You know, that's the one that uh, it's very itchy, starts out as little bumps, and then the bug bumps become blisters. We always describe them as kind of like a, a wet rose. It looked like the lesion of a, a vesicle is what we call it. And they break out all over the body. There's uh, fever, mm. a number of other things. This can be avoided by a vaccination. Mm -hmm. But if you if you are one of the people that choose the other route, uh, then there's a possibility your child may get chicken pox, and that's okay. Uh, although there are complications that can occur from it uh, that we don't like. But most of the time, there are many of the natural healers that think this is part of the body developing its immune system, and it will get rid of it, and it the toxins will be out, and then you'll be okay for life, although you may get uh, shingles later on in life. It's something to think about, but it's uh, it's part of life. It does exist out there. Chickenpox exists, and if your child gets it, talk to your doctor, and there, are, uh, it's usually a virus, so there's no uh, bacterial antibiotic that you could take, but there are things that you can do to protect from the itching and the fever and just the lousy feelings that a child has. Yeah, colds and viruses, upper respiratory infections, they're out there. Uh, there is no Trinity of Life uh, episode and no Magical Medical Tour episode that is going to eliminate them from the world. <laughs> so in this particular case, 
the things that are important are going back to the original process of having good healthy habits. You have good nutrition, uh, you sleep well, you exercise well as a child, and you have good patterns of washing uh, your hands before you eat and after the bathroom. And if you cough, cough into an elbow, sneeze into an elbow, get your students and friends and peers to do that. I always love the Asian concept of putting on a mask. I can't believe that we don't do that in this country. Mm -hmm. But I think it's a, a very civilized thing to do, honoring other people and yourself. Uh, so that's an important thing. And then if you're around somebody that's coughing, try and stay away from them and don't share food with them at that time. So I don't think there's too much more to say in that. If you do get a cold or a flu, then it's important to recognize it and realize that you have to go through a process that uh, is going to allow you to heal well, your immune system to get better, and then back to school, which brings up, uh, unless you have a specific thing about some of these things that we talked about, I would like to then discuss the next concept of making the decision to keep your child home from school. Ah, well, before you even get into that, Glenn, something about nutrition that okay. is uh, uh, sort of, um, I've, I've heard a lot of parents ask uh, myself, because the main um, fluid that I have my child consume is water, uh -huh. just plain old water, not juices, not dairy, just water. And... Um, which was a, a, a very interesting concept to me was here in the school systems of California, at least, you know, all the children in elementary school are able to take breakfast and lunch at school. It is provided for them. And you, you mean bring from home, you mean have at school? At school. The right. schools actually provide breakfast and lunch for the students. So, of course, many parents then don't have to wake up at 5.30 in the morning, such as myself, and <laughs> prepare a, a lunch. Um, you, they have the option of whether or not they're going to, you know, uh, stand in line and get their food from the cafeteria. And I, I do believe that uh, I've heard from other parents who've been around for a while that they said that the menu has changed quite a bit, and some now have implemented salad bars, etc., you know, more balanced diet because it's made up with a nutritionalist. But every meal has the children get a container of milk. And uh, I do remember the first day of school, kindergarten, where my child was very nervous and very scared of this whole new situation going from a school of 30 students to a school of 650 students, you know, very overwhelming, that he stood in line and held his lunchbox, but also got his tray of food <laughs> and sat down like everyone else was, you know, directed to and proceeded to um, have lunch and proceeded to drink the milk as everyone else did. Well, of course, needless to say, by the end of the day, he had so much mucus that it, you know, wasn't pleasant. And I said, uh, you know, he does drink milk occasionally, sometimes with cereal, you know, but not in doses like that. And uh, he came back and, you know, I could see the mucus and 
he could feel the mucus and and he went back to I'm going back to my water. That's it. You know, he was done. Um, and I had a lot of parents ask me about, you know, because their child has seen my child bring lunch and, you know, how do you get him to eat the lunch when everyone else is doing something else? And why not the milk? So can you speak a little bit about dairy and dairy in the diet? I can, but before I speak about that, uh, again, it's patterns of behavior. And I think uh, one of the things I appreciate all of the work that you do and not wanting you to get up at five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> it's worth uh, it. To keep well, health, it's worth it. <laughs> that's where the partner comes in. This brings up another point before I, I forget it, and then I will talk about the dairy. <clears throat> being a parent and being an advocate for your child and an advocate for other children, I think, is an important part of schooling. So I think it's very important that parents get involved in the school and talk about the things that are being presented to the children. You know, if uh, there's soda cans and, and soft drinks in the school, that may not be a good idea. So maybe as parents, you can talk and say, this isn't nutritionally right. I mean, I know that if, if suddenly they had a cigarette machine in the elementary school, <laughs> parents would be up in arms. Right, right. I think a lot of the schools, they, they banned the soda machines now. Yeah, that's happening. And it's because of consumers and awareness and yes. higher consciousness. So I think that could be taken to the next level of saying, and what you're bringing up is uh, they're talking to actual nutritionists who are developing uh, good things for kids. So back to your original question about dairy. <clears throat> I think it's a great marketing product. Uh, certainly has good taste in certain areas, cheeses and uh, other things like that. I am personally not in favor of dairy. I think it has in it, first of all, if you think about the original concept, and, and I know people say this, and I even get tired of hearing it, but I can't help but saying it, it's we're one of the only species that drinks the milk of another species. Yes. So... Uh, that being said, then we move past that and look at a cow. A cow's milk is designed to take a calf, you know, who weighs a certain amount and bring it up to 250 or 500 pounds. <laughs> so if you just look at it from that point of view, is that what you want for your children? There's been great marketing in terms of calcium and, yes. and, and bones and everybody needs milk and great looking uh, actors and actresses with the little white mustache. Uh, it's been a great marketing, but I, I think it's overrated. And we're starting to see that the the sugars in the milk, and the proteins in the milk have potential problems to cause, as you said, mucus, but allergies within the gastrointestinal mm -hmm. tract where uh, a large percent of the immune system of our bodies exists. So when we're putting these things that aren't necessarily easily digested and assimilated appropriately, uh, I think that it potentially causes more harm than good. So if I had to give my opinion, I would say no milk. Um, water is really good. Uh, breast milk as a child. But again, I would love to have this on an MMT discussion with pediatricians. Absolutely. Yes. 
because I'm, I'm clearly not the expert in nutrition or milk or chemistry. It's just based on, again, you know, my 40 years in medicine and 30 years in, in emergency and dealing with uh, alternative healers. I think that we should cut back on the milk intake for children. A glass of milk every once in a while uh, is okay especially in cereal or something. And you can look at alternative milks, you know, uh, and I don't even want to get into that too mm -hmm, much. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm not in favor of dairy in general, although I must say that life without pizza. <laughs> Ice cream. What are you talking about? Ice cream. I can give... I can give up some of the ice creams. There are certain flavors I can't give up. There and, you go. So I think, again, you know, when I work with my clients, I always start with an 80-20 rule. And if you're eating 80% well and doing 80% uh, of good mm -hmm. things in your patterns of behavior and your life balance program, that 20% and having the occasional ice cream for a treat instead of the broccoli, which is better, uh, it's okay. <laughs> The children should not be thinking as a pattern of behavior that ice cream should be uh, a normal part of their nutritional diet. It should be on a rare occasion as a treat for something different. Uh, and then they will, over time, maybe develop on their own, uh, not a, a real craving for the ice cream. And that's one of the things that we're trying to prevent in teaching children good patterns of behavior to eliminate some of these psychological cravings that they developed when, okay, when I'm getting, when my parents yell at me and I'm depressed or angry or something, yes. eating ice cream is a good way to make me feel better. That manifestation and that pattern of behavior is going to go on <clears throat> when they become an adult and they, uh, their boss says something to them or a professor says something and they go out and eat their ice cream and then they're not healthy. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. good line, point. bottom line for me is I would say much less dairy than more dairy in the broccoli. Broccoli as a treat. You're good boy, here's your broccoli. Here's your broccoli. Get a Brussels sprout because you are extra special. There today. you go. I like that. I know, but I think, uh, you know, uh, I must say, you know, the treats were fun when I was a kid, and the broccoli wasn't always as much fun. But as an adult now, <clears throat> I see that difference. And it was all strictly about the way it was presented. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I agree. You know, presented with love, you have a better shot. So a next uh, aspect of children and school and is the the concept of, do I keep my child home from school today because they're sick? It's not an easy thing. You have this thing. It's going to disrupt your life. Possibly you can't go to work or you need to get a babysitter. And you're worried about the child being sick. And you're also at the same time, now they're going to miss a day of school. And this might have been an important day. So it's a very important decision that parents have to make all the time. And it's not an easy one. So maybe a few little simple guidelines. And remember, this isn't whether or not to go to the emergency department. This is just about going to school or staying home for the day or for a few days. So it again goes back to the concept of really understanding what's normal in your child and how they're manifesting normalcy. And if they're suddenly acting abnormal, then that's an indicator. 
the next thing, the simplest thing is, do they have a fever? And I would say that if they have a fever and it's uh, maybe at least two degrees above their normal temperature, or if they are normal, then I would say somewhere around the 100, 101 temperature, they probably should stay home that day, just as a simple guideline. Again, you know, your child runs hot, so that may be a variation, but just as a simple guideline, if they have a fever that's a little more abnormal than what you know, and they're not acting totally normal, then keep them home. If they have vomiting, mm. or, yeah, those are two other good reasons to keep them home. And I think those are the three big ones, but uh, there are a few more. Uh, and what I would say in that area the simplest guideline for me is, let's say a kid has a flu and they're coughing and they have a runny nose or something. One of the things for me as a, a fake parent <laughs> is I would ask myself, would I want the other parent to send their child to school with the symptoms that my child has so that my child may get what they have? Mm -hmm. And if you ask yourself that question, if you've gone through, they have a fever, they're vomiting, or they have diarrhea, or they just don't feel well, and you trust them and honor them in that process, and you look at them and say, okay, that's not the normal one that I know. It's not because they're having their first test today and they don't want to go, <laughs> recognizing something. But then you ask that question, would I want someone else's child sitting next to my child with these symptoms? Mm. And if you can answer that and say no, then they should stay home. And I think that sort of covers everything that I wanted to say today from my point of view. So now I open it to whatever you need to oh, know. I, I think you've covered so many areas. I mean, when you added the lysine there, I was like, oh, bravo. <laughs> There's another disease. It's called fifth disease. One, two, three, four, five, fifth disease. Uh, and that comes back to ancient time when there were only a number of diseases. And this was the fifth one. And it was a slapped. It looks like a rash that develops on the cheeks of children. And sometimes there's a little fever with it. And it looks like they were slapped by either a parent or a teacher or someone else. They have these two red rashes right on their cheeks. It's on a, both sides? Most of the time it's on both sides. It can be on one side. Wow. Or I could be wrong on that. Most of the time it could be on one side and sometimes it's on both. So I would have to look that up. But it is something that's common and most school nurses see at least some of these uh, during a school year. And parents get upset because the way it looks, it looks like they might have been slapped and now they're worried about whether there was something that happened at school that they don't know about. But it's simple, common, and uh, it's usually viral. And, and how, how do they, I mean, because it's viral, then it could be them touching their face or? Oral, yeah, oral, fecal, nasal, you know, all of those areas, again, these things are transmitted that way. Hmm. Wow, I've never heard of that one. The, uh, it's called the fifth? Yeah, just like the third, fourth, fifth. Right. When when we were just starting to label diseases and we recognized this one, it happened to be the fifth disease. I'm not even sure what one through four are. I'd have to look wow. them up. And there's but, nothing that you can do about it. It's just 
they stay home, they rest. Right. And you can talk to your doctor if you're nervous about it because it looks like a sudden rash. There might even be a little fever with it and a few other things. And it will go away. It is contagious, uh, so it can be transmitted. But once I think, uh, you know, usually when you see the rash, it's probably not as contagious anymore. So they were probably more contagious before they had the rash. Oh, wow. That's a new one that I've never heard of. That's great. <clears throat> something that you've never heard of today. So I'm, it was a successful uh, episode. Oh, yes. Yes. I'm just going to throw you out there. Research more. <laughs> so Tell us parents can be prepared of what contagious know. viruses that right. our children might come home with. What's the ninth disease? What's the ninth, right? It's like, it's like okay, it's the fifth disease. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, that's very interesting. Well, I, I, I think you've really filled our cup runneth over today, Dr. Glenn Woolman. You've given us uh, <clears throat> so much to think about, and right from the word go. Um, so really, I have to almost retitle this whole program because it's not just about um, preventing uh, what our children might be coming back from <clears throat> school with, but also setting the precedent of of how to prevent those prevent the prevention. It says, can I say that? <laughs> it's your show. Yeah, there you go. You can. If you put on Magical Medical Tour, I might have a comment. There you go. <laughs> oh, share your comment. Do do tell. Then, I'm not sure how to deal with that. <laughs> well, you know, about preventing a pregnancy that you're not ready for it at that time. When you're ready, then you should do the things and go for it in the right way. But it makes sense to understand that having a child is a major commitment. Yes. And, and it's a lifetime commitment. And you want to do the best for your child. And the way to do the best for your child is starting out on on your path with your partner, if you have a partner, and make sure that your path is a healthy, highly conscious one. Mm-hmm. And if you do that and you bring your child into the world or, or from certain points of view, if they see that you're a healthy, conscious type of person, they'll choose you as a parent. And then, you know, but that's a whole other philosophy. Yes, yes, of course. But but uh, getting into lifestyle changes and making sure that you're healthy before the pregnancy, both of you, because it's it's the sperm and the egg that make the process happen. And if that sperm and that egg are not healthy, then everything starts right from that very moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if then the next part is the uh, process of, you know, going through gestation and, and the whole pregnancy. And if that is healthy, then that brings in a healthy child most of the time. And right. if it's not, healthy, then you have an unhealthy child and you have all of the issues that you have to work with at that point. So the sooner you start being healthy on your own and developing your own patterns of behavior and you make them easy to do so that the child is seeing that it's really fun and cool and loving then the risks get uh, lower, the probabilities of infections get lower. And if they do happen, which they do, we can't prevent all illness and all injury, then you have better tools to recognize and 
go through the process and heal. So there you have it. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Glenn Woolman, our medical guide, as you keep guiding us even on Trinity of Life. Uh, thank you. <laughs> no, this is really wonderful, Glenn. I, 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 I think you've really shared and, and uh, helped a lot of us understand the awarenesses, you know, uh, that we all have to really look into. And it really doesn't take a lot of time. It, it really is about, you know, taking action. Taking action. I, I, we just interviewed an 89-year-old woman uh, the other day, and about her, how she's able to keep up with everything in life and be so strong and focused, and and she said it's just about taking action, you know. And that's that was her tip for everybody. It was like take action. Don't just hear about it and and listen. And you have to move on it. You have to take that action. And that's basically what you're saying to us now is really taking action. Become aware. And that is the biggest part of the prevention. Communicate, become aware, and continue to learn. Take in the knowledge. So excited I might about having a child and become a parent now. There you go. Okay. And then we will have to interview you through that whole process. Wouldn't that be wonderful? (laughs) My entire pregnancy. (laughs) Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Any blessings and congratulations on doing such a great job on Trinity of Life and bringing out all of the great healers and and great uh, examples of people that have done what we talk about and are living proof for the rest of us. Yes, yes. Well, thank you. I mean, really, uh, <clears throat> I think our, our two shows go in tandem with uh, our Magical Medical Tour as well. And, well, <clears throat> we just have to bring more doctors and we have to talk about things like sugars and dairy this next time and yeah it's time it's time for people to raise that awareness exactly thank thank you so much glenn for blessing us here today and i would also like to thank every one of you for joining us and supporting us through this new platform of education and information you know we're always so grateful we wouldn't be here without you and you give us reason to keep doing what we do and what we're passionate about Um, We invite you, of course, to join us here at yogahub.tv live every Tuesday for our show with Dr. Glenn Woolman, the Magical Medical Tour, uh, live Tuesdays at 10.30 a.m. Pacific Time and 1.30 Eastern Time, and of course here live on Trinity of Life um, every Wednesday at 11 a.m. 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And I would also like to invite you to... Join Glenn Woolman at his site, glennwoolman.com, where you can be in touch with him, ask him more questions, and also to learn about his metaphor square breath, which is wonderful. Parents, it's wonderful for you to learn as we are going through this relentless time, a wonderful, blessed, relentless time with our children. It really helps to keep us grounded. Um, whether we're working or working with our children. Um, And also, you can also contact um, Glenn through Twitter or follow him through Twitter at uh, Glenn Woolman. And um, yes, and through My Yoga Hub, myyogahub.com forward slash G Woolman, if you'd like to be in touch with him uh, through our community here at Yoga Hub. 
So until the next time, we look forward to seeing you and having you join us again. Namaste. Namaste.